This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome to The Takeout. We're back out in restaurants. We've been doing that a little bit more lately. The Dubliner. A familiar place for the takeout. We're happy to be here. It's breakfast time. We might actually have some breakfast. A couple of things. Thanks for finding the show. However, however you do it, podcast platforms, radio stations around the country, Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, and of course, CBS News streaming. Quick reminder, politics, policy, a little bit of pop culture. The guest is never edited, and we do not pander. We're not here to please you. We're here to inform you, and we try never to be predictable. Our guest this week, Mick Mulvaney. He worked in the Trump administration in a couple of important posts, OMB Director, Office of Management and Budget, and he was Acting Chief of Staff. We'll get into that in a minute. He's also, as you might have heard somewhat recently, a contributor at CBS. And you got a frosty reception for coming to CBS as a contributor, and I want to ask you a little bit about that. But first, Mick, it's great to have you. Thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. It's not my first time in the Dubliner. No, um, in no fact, it's, it's not. not it's not or my, on the takeout. It's not my first birthday in the Dubliner, for that matter. It is my first time actually drinking coffee in the Dubliner. That's um, that's on new to me. Yeah, that's not usually what I drink on yeah, my birthday in exactly. the Dubliner. How young are you, Mick Mulvaney? I am 55 years old today, so I'm still younger than both you and Harold Watson Gowdy III. Trey is otherwise uh, known as Trey. Trey is still much also older than I am. Also, a member of the Hall of Participants on the Takeout. Yeah, he. Uh, um, by the way, and I keep telling him, you know, people ask me about his hair, and I look at you, and I'm like you are you are appropriately gray. Uh, people ask me if uh, if Trey is prematurely I've every gray yeah, hair. He's, is Trey prematurely gray? I'm like, no, he's old enough to be to have that kind of hair. So <laughs> anyway, right, it's good so, to see you. Good to see you. Um, Let me ask you about a couple of things that drew the attention and scorn of media critics of CBS when CBS brought you on board. (laughs) Yeah. So they noted that in the early days of COVID, working for the Trump administration, you described COVID-19 as the media hoax of the day. Do you regret that? Do I regret it? No. I mean, the information we had available to us at the time... Um, and anybody expected it to be uh, what it was. And keep in mind, I had a very unique perspective. I was in the White House trying to get people to pay attention to COVID, and they wouldn't for the longest time. Including the president. Including, no, including the media I'm talking about. The president was fine. The Inside the building, we were fine, but we were trying to get folks to actually talk more about COVID, and we couldn't get the media to do it because impeachment was going on. I would. I have those, Meaning December of 2019. It was January of 2020. Right. 
2020. And I remember uh, a, a media person called me and said, oh, listen, I have a couple of questions about COVID. I'm like, look, that's great. We're actually bringing in uh, the, the head of health and human services, um, Alex Azar, to, to make a, do a briefing today in the West Wing. And so if you want to please send somebody down, come and, and he'll give a presentation and answer all your questions about COVID because it's important that we start to get information out there. And nobody showed up. Nobody showed up because it was still it was the one of the trial days in, of, in impeachment. Uh, of impeachment. We went down to um, we went down. Right, but lack of media attention is different than media hoax. We went. Well, uh, let me finish, though. We went down to uh, the Senate and the House that day later that same week to try and brief the House and the Senate members on covid. I brought the head of HHS. I brought Fauci. I brought uh, Cadillac, uh, uh Bob Redfield. Uh, DHS was there, uh, transportation was there, everybody. It was a, a, effectively the COVID task force coming down to talk to Congress the about COVID it. COVID task force to be. To be, exactly right, which I was running before Mike Pence took over. And I think we had five senators and 12 members of the House. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. So when it all of a sudden became a big thing to the media after the impeachment was over, that was sort of my perspective on it. It was like, look, you didn't care about this when impeachment was going on, but now that impeachment's over, you see it as the next way to get the president. And that's, that was my attitude when I said that. Do you still believe that it was the media's approach to COVID that was to get the president or to talk about a story of global concern? Both. If they, if, if they could do both, they absolutely would. Um, the death counts every single day on the television. You turned on any single media uh, news uh, program, especially on cable, and they'd have the running death counts. They'd have that up there right now. Not a now. meaningful number? It was absolutely a meaningful number. Where is it today? It's about 300 a day. It, it is. But you know that because you're in the business. You don't know because you turn on television and it's not, it's not a running count mm-hmm. anymore. It's, do I feel that a Republican administration is treated differently than a Democrat administration by the press? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. And you'll never be able to convince me otherwise. By the way, the same is true on the other side. There are networks that treat Republicans much better than Democrats. We all know who those folks are. It's mm-hmm. Fox, right? Um, OAN, but, Newsmax, etc. I, I never actually watched those, but yes, okay. Um, so you see my point is that there, there is a bias in the media politically, and the fact that I had to live with that for four years was, was, was tough. There's no question. And you are tenacious about that, are you not? I'm tenacious about most things, aren't I? You, have, you tell me. I think so, yeah. Listen, I, I have a good relationship with the press. I have a good relationship with a lot of individuals who work there. Um, I was talking to you before we came on the show about you know my commentary we'll, we'll talk about it more i'm sure before the end of today uh, about the january 6th committee mm-hmm. well and, yes we will get into yeah, that and i think it was somebody on cnn who asked me he said look why are you being so vocal now in your criticism of the president i'm like i'm not being more vocal in my criticism i'm just as vocal in my criticism as i was in my in in my support for him beforehand it's just nobody wanted to hear it cnn doesn't call you if you for go, advocacy of ex- trump exactly for defending the president mm-hmm. you don't doesn't get you on many you, networks you mentioned impeachment i want to go back to that for a moment because mm-hmm. it was said when we hired you that you were an active enabler of trump's deceit about ukraine and many people replayed an active a, enabler did somebody actually say that yes is that, is that, yes wow yes an okay. active enabler of trump's deceit uh, and you were described as a hack, unethical, and many people reminded the audience in case they forgot of a famous White House briefing in which you said, I have news for everybody. Get over it. There's going to be influence in foreign policy. That was in regards to a request from Ukraine's President Zelensky for more javelins, more hardware. Mm-hmm. 
And the president said, yes, but I'd like to ask a favor. That favor being uh, an opening of an investigation into Hunter Biden. And the president saying, you open an investigation, we'll take it from there. Do you have any regrets about your defense of that approach That's or not, that comment? Yeah. I have news for everybody. Get none, over it. None. Um, but and, and I've done this several times yes. with, a, with a friend of ours, John Carl. Mm-hmm. Frank Luntz is a mutual friend of ours, and Frank runs a class. I know class. Frank very well. spoken to his classes probably, and we have a regular deal now where John and I will go in, and in front of this class of high-ranking students mm-hmm. from around the country, we'll diagnose the press conference. Mm-hmm. And I encourage you to go back and watch it. It's yep. not, it's not, watched it's, it. It's not exactly what people think it is remembered to be, and that's, you know, that's how histories get written, right? The part about Get Over It was my pushing back on a lot of the – um, career State Department staff being upset with our decision to withhold uh, aid had nothing to do with why at that time um, it was like they wanted us to give money to Ukraine and we didn't want to do it and they didn't like that and my attitude about it was that they were using this as an excuse to attack a president that they absolutely hated and many career staff at the State Department absolutely hated Donald Trump and my my comment about he won get over it was like look he is the president he gets to make the decisions we are going to have a different foreign policy than other than other uh, elected officials would elections have consequences and there's always going to be political influence in foreign policy get over it that was the comment I made it wasn't yeah listen we withheld the money uh, which is what it was people tried to portray it as I admitted we withheld the money because of Hunter Biden and I was telling people just to get over it that's and that's never what I said and in fact a couple of commentators actually said that uh, on the news during the impeachment because this uh, some of the House Democrats had paste cut and paste that press mm-hmm. conference to make it look like exactly what you just said so listen it's Washington DC um, there's a lot of spin involved in everything there's a lot of cutting and pasting there's a lot of uh, perspective differences on things i absolutely completely defend what we did with ukrainian aid we withheld it for the two reasons i've told you about i've told other folks about and by the way one of which is coming to fruition today or at least getting new light which is that we withheld the money because the europeans weren't helping and number two because of corruption in ukraine and i said that a hundred times to people including to john carl that's making the news this week that the Europeans are still not helping out Ukraine like they said they were going to. And there was a, a lead story in several newspapers yesterday about new corruption in, in Ukraine. As Zelensky so, firing two top officials in his own government, the history, president of Ukraine. You know, we were right. The place, is, the place is, listen, I'm on their side. There's no question. I'm not saying that we should be withholding the aid, but it shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody that the Europeans aren't helping and the Ukraine is corrupt. That we is knew the voice of ago. Mick Mulvaney. He is our guest here on The Takeout. We are in the Dubliner. We may or may not have breakfast right now. It's just coffee. We may stick with that. You'll find out in segment two. When we come back in just one second. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. We're at the Dubliner, out and about again. Mick Mulvaney, CBS News contributor, former significant official in the Trump administration, is our guest. One last thing before we go. Um, You said you uh, want Ukraine to be supported. What do you think the stakes are in Ukraine? And as you view 
the conversation about where this now prolonged military conflict is, what are the stakes for the United States? Um, I actually think that the Biden administration has been walking a, a fine line, but doing it relatively well. If I were in the White House right now advising the President of the United States, there's not a lot of good options. I mean, doing nothing is obviously not an option. Um, putting American troops on the ground in, in Ukraine is not an option. So walking this fine line of providing significant military aid and economic sanctions is probably the best course of action. So I will defend the Biden administration on that. I also think it sends a powerful message to China um, that if they ended up getting a little aggressive with Taiwan, that they know what's coming, which would be economic thing, sanctions that could be crippling to their economy as well. Would it be crippling to ours? Yes, but we've been willing to incur that. So have the Europeans. Um, again, I, we'll talk later about my criticisms of Donald Trump when we talk about the January 6th committee, but he was absolutely right about Nord Stream 2. We complained about it to the Europeans. We, we, we put sanctions on that pipeline because we said, look, this pipeline is, from Russia into Europe. This is going to be used as a weapon against you. This is if you ever get in a conflict with Russia, they will have you uh, under under their thumb because you get too much energy from them. And we were right. So um, it's a shame it's taken the Europeans this long to figure it out. By the way, um, and I, I think the Europeans are reassessing their rapid approach of believing that you could get to renewables without bridging with fossil fuels. That's fair. They're still paying the Russians. I mean, they're still buying Russian gas today as we sit here. They are paying for the war in Ukraine today. And that's something that would drive, should drive any American crazy. And it looks like a war of attrition. And that sounds a bit antiseptic. It's not for the people living and dying every hour and every day in the eastern part of Ukraine. It's Do you think Ukraine can win? Yeah, I do. But if it does turn into a war of attrition, I've got news for you. The Russians are going to win. I mean, that, that's that's what they're really, really good at. I mean, that's that's how they won World War II. History I, would so suggest. Yeah, I think what, what was their attitude Should the Europeans about, be doing more and understanding that this is existential for the continent? I, 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 yes. And that's why I keep hesitating when I when I when I hear people encouraging the U.S. to do more. I want to do more, but I don't want to lead on this. This is not this does not affect American interests as dramatically as it affects European interests. And I'm not sure why we should be more engaged and more committed to Ukraine than their immediate neighbors. The Poles get it. The Lithuanians get it. They do. Um, I'm not sure the French and the Germans and the Spanish get it. Or if they do, they're not hinting that they do. Uh, I think the British actually get it more than anybody else. So I, I just wish Europe would do more. All right. Let's get to January 6th. Overall, your assessment of what you ha have you watched the hearings? I have. I, I missed one because uh, I was traveling. I've seen uh, a couple of all the other ones. I, I really started place, playing close attention after Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. That, to me, was a game changer. you believe her? I do. She used to work for me. I know her. Don't know her well. She was a junior person working in the Office of Legislative Affairs. But I know she's a lifelong Republican. She worked for Ted Cruz. She worked for uh, Steve Scalise. She was in the White House for four years. I believe she worked on the campaign. So um, there's no reason for for her to lie. And that, that to me has sort of been, I mean, I run hot and cold in the committee because it is structured poorly. It's structured unfairly. It is an absolutely biased political witch hunt. There is no question about that. At the same time, the testimony that you're seeing is usually from lifelong Republicans under oath. And that makes a difference. And many of whom supported the president and supported the overall agenda. I've, I've tried to do this in print, and it just doesn't come across. So I'll try it now on radio. It's like if you went to or the TV. if you went to the Salem witch trials, okay. And with the benefit of history, you knew that it was the Salem witch trials, and you knew what it was. But w during the witch trials, somebody actually turned somebody else into a duck. 
would you ignore it because you knew it was the Salem witch trials or would you actually believe what you had seen with your own eyes? And I'm sort of, that's where I am with this thing. I'm like, you know what? I don't like the fact that Liz Cheney's there. I don't like the fact that Kinzinger's there. I certainly don't like the fact that McCarthy was not allowed to put his chosen people on there because that's how Congress is supposed to work. I don't like the fact that you cannot get the full transcripts or the full videos. I don't like the fact that the witnesses can't make their own recordings of their testimony. There's so much about the structure of this that is wrong that it, it sort of violates my sense of propriety. But at the same time, when Bill Barr puts his hand on a Bible and says, we looked at, at all the, the allegations about the 2020 election and we didn't find anything of merit, I believe that. So even though it's, it's, it's coming from a perverted process, it's still people I trust under oath. And getting to the truth. I think so. I think so. Now, keep in mind, a lot of what Cassidy said, and this is what folks who I don't watch it casually or not sort of tuned into, much of what she said would never have been allowed in court because it's hearsay. Okay? Mm-hmm. You might be allowed to say it in a grand jury investigation, but you couldn't say it in court. So it's not the same. Said something to the effect of... I, I heard somebody say something or someone told me they heard somebody say that. Her story, for example, about the president grabbing the wheel in the limousine was actually second level hearsay. She heard somebody else who heard it from somebody, right? You, you'd never get away with that in court. So it's not the same as evidence, which is why I haven't made up my mind yet about what I think about January 6th, but I'm absolutely intrigued by what Republicans will say under oath what they saw and heard that day. So let me just run some names by you. You believe what Pat Cipollone has said so far that you've seen? Yeah, you know Pat and I don't get along. Uh, we haven't gotten along for a long time. But Pat is a, a, a thoroughly honest and credible man. He would never lie under oath, ever. Bob Barr. Same. Eric Hirschman. I don't know Eric as well. So he, he, was, uh, he was sort of on the way in as I was on the way out. So I don't, I don't have the same experience with him. He looks like a pretty tenacious fellow, though. Uh, and he was good in impeachment, obviously. He was there defending the president. Yeah, he comes across as very credible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know him like I know the others. One thing I'd like you to help people try to understand is... And I do notice, How by does the way, access to, the, to a White House, to the Trump White House, work? Because uh, these people who came in, outside advisors, got into the White House, it appears, either at the president's beck and call or Mark Meadows' sufferance? How does that happen? Yeah, that's a really good question with no really easy answer. I'll I'll see if I can sort of give you a 30,000-foot answer. If you want to drill down, we can, which is Trump never liked anybody else being a gatekeeper. He really didn't. Uh, It was part of the reason John Bolton had to leave was that John was screening the president from foreign leaders, and the president hated that. He hated that. It was just something about he never wanted people to think he was too big to meet with them. He wanted, If you wanted to meet with the president, he would try and figure out a way to take that meeting. I got that as the chief of staff. Um, so I never had much luck in pre- keeping people out. You could do it from time to time, but you couldn't keep them out forever. The key was making sure that they weren't in there by themselves, that the crazies were not in there by themselves. When Peter Navarro was in the Oval Office, um, and he'd sneak in all the time, um, that somebody up front would, would uh, in front of the, uh, the, out, the outer oval would call me and say, Peter just snuck in the back door. You better get in there. And I'd go in or I'd try to get somebody you else to come classify in. classify Peter Navarro as a crazy? Yes. Why? Because I think he is. Okay. That's pretty simple. All right. Um, uh, Peter, how Peter... Uh, when you are getting your constitutional law, election law advice from your trade negotiator who's not a lawyer and the guy who sells you pillows you are listening to the wrong people and those are the folks who are advising the president at the end that one thing that i took away from the last hearing was the Sidney powell rudy giuliani testimony i'm like oh my lord i can't believe this was this was actually the inner circle there at the end 
Um, and there was a discussion about making her a special counsel. Stunning, stunning to me. Uh, and, fi- and, and, and by the way, um, yeah, if you wanted to be critical of, of Donald Trump, especially going forward in 2024, here's a question to ask him. Who are your advisors going to be moving forward? I think it's a fair question. Who do you foresee being your vice president? Who do you foresee being a secretary of state? Who, are, who is going to be the White House counsel? Because um, if the answer is Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, that's, that should disqualify you from office. Again, back to the access. Do you blame Mark Meadows for the people who got in getting to the president? Yeah, it's the chief, not, not getting in. It's the lack of balance that I blame him for. Because, again, it was very hard to keep people out. But if there were going to be somebody like Sidney Powell in there, you had to make sure that Cipollone was in there. You had to make sure that Bill Barr knew about it. You had to make sure there was balance. Um, that for every Peter Navarro, you had a Stephen Mnuchin. You know, for every Rudy Giuliani, you had a Pat Cipollone. And if you didn't, what was the danger in any context? You end up making really, really, really bad decisions. Because the president would be influenced by the voices he heard. The president loved to manage from conflict. He wanted to hear both sides of the story. But when if he started to only hear one side of the story, he could make really bad decisions. In, do you have any examples? No, January 6th would be, the, would be the example. And there were other things I saw during the time. If we had just listened to Peter Navarro and didn't have Stephen Mnuchin or Gary Cohn, we would have made some really bad decisions. That is the voice of Mick Mulvaney. We are at the Dubliner, always happy to be here. It is Mick Mulvaney's 55th birthday. That is a total coincidence, but worth noting nevertheless. I'm Major Garrett. When we come back for segment three, we're going to talk about how once Mick Mulvaney promised and predicted former President Trump would concede defeat and exit the White House gracefully. I'm Major Garrett. More on that when we return. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. Dubliner is our host restaurant. Always happy to be here. Mick Mulvaney is our guest. Third time on the show. Once as OMB director, once as acting chief of staff, and now as a CBS News contributor. So on November 7th in the Wall Street Journal, year 2020, this headline appeared above your name. If he loses, Trump will concede gracefully. That did not happen. How did you get that wrong? And I love this part about Washington, D.C., is that you tend to pay more attention to when you were wrong than when you were right. By the way, I've been right about the economy more than the Treasury Secretary, so I'm looking forward to, uh, to taking that position in the next administration. No, I'm joking. Um, let me tell you about that. That was very interesting. Um, that was part prediction and part advice. And no one's ever asked me about this, by the way, on the radio, so you're getting this or on television. Um, were you trying to plant the idea in yes. his head? It, I knew what the president read. I knew where he got his information, and I knew how he processed information. And this was my advice to the president. This was me putting on my chief of staff hat to remind him 
you have done this in the past. You you have acted presidentially at times when otherwise people think you might not have. Um, and if you want to cement your legacy as a as a great president, you have to you have to go out gracefully. Uh, obviously, he didn't listen to that advice, but there was that was absolutely an audience of one. I will take the criticism publicly for making a bad prediction. I get it. Um, I and I was never foresaw January sixth by any stretch of the imagination. I just thought he might not leave. Um, so, but it had to be carted out. Yeah, I mean, and, and that it would be an ugly thing that he wouldn't he wouldn't leave the letter. He wouldn't welcome the people in. You know, that, that kind of thing. Um, welcome the, the new president in. All of the all of the customary stuff that a president is supposed to do on the way out of office. I wanted him to do that. I was afraid that he wouldn't. I never anticipated any violence on January Is that 6th. why you wrote the column with the idea that people simply misunderstand Trump, saying, don't let the misunderstanders, Mr. President, fool you. This is actually a good thing to do, and you will emerge larger. Were you trying to get that there across? There was that, and there was also the stories I told in there were true. Um, about the times in the past when I was chief of staff where he, we had given him options to do stuff that was maybe not entirely presidential and he said, no, 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 I'm the president of the United States, that's beneath me. He didn't use those terms, but that was, that was, that was the conversation we had, right? So I knew that was his mindset on some things and granted, in, in comparison to a transition of power, they were absolutely minuscule in terms of importance, but the track record was there. He, he was able to be a presidential person when he needed to be. Is it heartbreaking for you that he didn't do that? Well, it's, it's just crushing. It's, it's, it's just, and not so much for myself, because, I mean, you know, I, I'll, I'll be fine. But there was legions of young people, men and women in their 20s and 30s, who made real sacrifices to work for the Trump administration and had tremendous accomplishments. Think about what they would have been able to look back on but for January 6th. Never started a war overseas, had a tremendous economy, low employment, no inflation. Um, we're actually making some progress on border security. We had a lot of net energy exporter. We had a tremendous, and the tax break, the tax laws. We had a great resume. Um, and all of those folks lost that on, on January 6th. And that's, they all worked for me in a sense, right? When you're the chief of staff, those folks work for you. And I just, it just crushes me that, um, that all those folks worked for essentially went out the window on January 6th. And those are the words of an indelible stain. You know, nothing's indelible in this town, um, especially for the younger people. It is, I but think, for the president. For the president, I think it probably is, and I probably so. I mean, and justifiably so. Yeah, exactly. When you when you, when you're the president of the United States, it's it doesn't get any higher than that, right? So your wins are wins that are indelible, and your losses are losses that are indelible. And when you when you're you don't get to offset, you know, a riot in the Capitol with great tax policy. No amount of great tax policy is going to ever undo a riot at the Capitol. It just isn't. How much responsibility do you believe he bears for that riot? I, you know, that's, that's the thing that comes away from the hearing, because that's what I've been saying for a year before the hearing started, is that I don't think he bore any responsibility for it. I've seen similar speeches dozens of times. I've been to Battle Creek, Michigan. I've been to Minneapolis with him when all the local media says Trump is here fomenting violence and there's going to be riots in the streets. And there was never any of that. They were always peaceful, fun sort of uh, rallies and celebrations and so forth. So I had seen that act before. Um, and I absolutely believed on January 6th, even when it was happening, that it was unintentional, that he did not mean for it to happen. Was he okay with it? That's another story. We could talk about what happened on the day. But I never believed he incited riot. And I think Bill Barr, by the way, may have said the same thing in his testimony, or in, at least in his book, that he didn't believe the president incited the riot. Do you believe so now? I wonder now. Again, because the evidence I've heard is not real evidence. It is 
hearsay evidence and secondhand. There's, uh, I absolutely believe he's lost the election. That, that evidence is real. That in terms of his role in the January 6th riots, I want to know more. I want to know what Steve Bannon was doing. I want to know who Mark Meadows was talking to. I want to know what the president knew. And I think that's a fair question to ask. Do you have any problem with the contempt of Congress prosecution of Steve Bannon? None whatsoever. Um, Would you like to see one of Mark Meadows? Uh, it's a really good question. I, I think Mark should just come forward. Uh, I think the president should. If the president, Mark, Mark and Steve are different in that Steve was not inside the White House. There's no way he can, act, he can actually invoke executive, uh, executive privilege because he wasn't a member of the executive branch, right? And he wasn't working for the not president Not in the contemporary time. time that matters. Exactly. It was two or three years before that. Um, so that's a different kettle of fish. But the president has come forward and say, you know what? I'm okay with Bannon testifying. Why isn't the president coming forward and say, I'm okay with Meadows testifying? Where, where is that conversation? I'm okay with Navarro testifying. If the president wants, one of the president's complaints about the process, and it's fair, is that his side of the story is not being told. He's right about that, okay, because of the structure of, of the committee. If Jim Jordan was there, we'd get other evidence in addition to what we've seen. But the way to fix that is to send your people up and say, go and tell the truth. And, and if, the fact that they're not doing that tells you something or suggests something it allows, about the limitations of the story they had to tell. It allows you to have doubts as to why they aren't coming in, and I have those doubts. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a moment ago it aggravates you that Liz Cheney is there and that Adam Kinzinger is there. Why does it aggravate you? Because this needed to be done properly. They've been got, these committees, there's a, way, there's a way they come into existence. You don't wave a magic wand. You actually vote on them. They're re- it's a House resolution. It's a House resolution. It's a House resolution. So there's something in writing. And says, this is what this committee is going to be doing. This is its scope of work. This is how we're going to populate the committee. As the House representatives, as an institution, therefore invested with the proper authorities. Exactly. You get subpoena authority. You get a budget. You get staff. Everything. Like we did when we did the Benghazi committee. Okay. The trade led. Okay. I wasn't directly involved with it, but I'm familiar with it. And the way it worked out is that we got our people, the Republicans were allowed to put their people on the committee, and the Democrats were allowed to put their people on the committee, and they functioned properly. Say what you want to about the motivations, the politics of it, I get that. But the structure of it was per the resolution that passed the floor of the House. That's not happening here. The resolution that passed allowed five Republicans and eight Democrats, and that's not happening. Mm -hmm. Of course, it is worth pointing out that the Senate Republicans killed a 9-11 style bipartisan commission that would have had a termination date of a year ago to finish its work with bipartisan staffing, bipartisan budget, and Senate Republicans killed that. I remind Republicans who complain about this structure of that uncomfortable fact. It's an excellent point. What a great question to ask a senator. Now that you've seen some of the testimony that you, was not available to you, that when, you, you could took, have gotten. That you, when you took that vote to say, no, we don't want to have a bipartisan committee, would you change your vote now? Right. I'd love to see a bike. And for this reason, by the way, I think Pelosi actually made a mistake here. Everybody says, you know, McCarthy made a mistake not putting Republicans. It's Pelosi because of what she did of, of, of forcing this uh, structure the way it is now. She turned off half the country and half the country is not watching. The, the, the Republican half of the party is not of uh, the country is not watching. How much how much benefit would it have to us as a nation if Republicans who really believe that Donald Trump won in 2020 
had watched the hearing where Bill Barr, the two-time Republican attorney general, comes on and says he didn't win the, 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 the election. When the Republicans who were running the campaign, Stepien and Clark, came forward and said, we didn't win. When the people who were running the challenges in Arizona and Wisconsin come forward and said, we didn't win. That would have been very good for the country. And it wouldn't have changed everybody's mind, but it may have changed a bunch of people's mind. And that would have been a, a, a viscerally good thing. But you're not getting that this time. And it would have looked more like the Watergate hearings, which were structured more along the lines of what you described previously. On Benghazi, it's exactly or right. Benghazi, or Benghazi. But Watergate is like the, yeah. the, 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 the pinnacle of congressional inquiries, live television coverage. It was institutionally sound. This one is not. Mm-hmm. When we come back for segment four, we're going to have a conversation about the election of 2020. Uh, I'll let everyone in the audience know, if you haven't seen my Twitter feed, I've got a book coming out on this. September 20th. We'll talk more about that as we get closer. The title The Big Truth. And as I often tell people, it's not a religious book. That would be the biggest truth. <laughs> but it's about the 2020 election and what actually happened as opposed to what you might have heard happen. I'm Major Garrett. Mick Mulvaney is our guest. Back for segment four in a second. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. We're at the Dubliner. Don't worry, folks. We're not fasting, but it is just a coffee and water breakfast for Mick Mulvaney and I. Um, Best so. breakfast, uh, uh, birthday breakfast in a long time. Exactly. So, 55, uh, Sammy Hagar texts flowing into Mick Mulvaney's iPhone uh, or Android, whatever it is. Uh, so, 2020. The, ele- the election was legit. Trump lost, albeit narrowly, but he lost. Agreed. No doubt in your mind. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a conservative with a small c. What does that mean? Amongst other things, it means that I have faith in institutions. Okay, I have a faith in the institution of the electorate. I have a faith in the institution of the courts. And I believe that if you believe you have been wronged as a candidate, you have the ability and the right and the wherewithal to go before the courts to and make your case. responsibility to your voters. Exactly. To go and say, Here, here's why I think yes. I won. And Trump did that 50 times? 60. Okay, and lost every single one. 61 out of 62. So I I, I don't know how you draw any other conclusion, but that you lost. I I don't know where this big lie is coming from, uh, other than people who think that the Portuguese hacked um, the thermostats. Yeah, I mean, come on now. At some point, you have to wonder who you're listening to, if if that's really the basis for your belief that you won a national election. Look, I want to ask you a question about that and the fervent belief within about a third, maybe slightly higher than a third of the Republican Party, that the big lie is not a lie, that the election was stolen. I have come to believe, Mick Mulvaney, that that is not a fact-based assessment. That's a proxy-based assessment. That is, I'm standing with Trump because everyone who's telling me it's a lie hates Trump, therefore hates me, and I'm going to stick with him on that emotional, psychic basis, not a fact basis. Which is the same basis. Do you, do you, do you yeah, think that's I, true? I, I think that's, that's very insightful. And I'm drawing parallels in my own head between 
that and how many Democrats responded to 2016. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, more people believed in, in, I believe it was like March of 2021, more people believed the election was legitimate than believed it was legitimate in March of 2017. So we had the same reaction to Trump, but again, because it was Republican Democrat, in my mind, I know I keep blaming a bunch of this on the press, but since it's not an e- the press is no longer an, uh, an even keel and doesn't treat both sides similarly, we don't hear about that as much. But both sides right now, if they lose, have a group of people who are simply going to say, I don't believe it because I, I, I can't believe it. Stacey Abrams did not concede in Georgia in 2018. I still think she hasn't. No, she hasn't. Yeah. So. My, and my, that's my point, and that's one of the things that my book, The Big Truth, gets at. If we reach a point in America, ladies and gentlemen, where for whatever reason parties do not accept defeats, we're in serious trouble. We're in the most serious trouble of my lifetime, period. Agreed. Agreed. I, I, Forbearance t- is a crucial component to the functioning and the preservation of our democracy. And forbearance means you fight like heck, you work as hard as you can, you campaign aggressively, you pursue your legal challenges, but when it's over, it's over. And it, but it takes leadership to do that. Usually, and, and there was an absence of that in the White House under President Trump. On both, well, on Clinton as well in 2016, who refused to concede, right? She conceded, she called. Eventually she did. She called at 3.30 uh, in the morning. I was no. standing there in New York. What, no. Yes, she called him. She called him. That's how he went out and gave the speech. Maybe I went to bed. She anyway, called him. But go back, she did call Go him. back to what Al Gore did in 2000, okay? She called him. That was, and I believe you. I, the next morning. I, I absolutely believe you. Um, what Al Gore did in 2000 was, that was leadership. It was. We, 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 we ran the race. We had a fight. We went to the courts. We I lost. disagree with the court, but that, that's the court exact, is decided. That's exactly right. You have to have a faith in the institution. If you lose the faith in the institution at the end of the day, then you're right. We do have serious problems. And now we have candidates on both sides, but predominantly on the Republicans. Predominantly side. Republicans right now saying, if I lose, it's just because it, it, they cheated. Fraud, yes. Yeah, and that's, that is a really, really... That is a non-functional approach to democracy. Agreed. All right. Um, and yet the former president keeps saying this. Does that disqualify him in your mind from 2024? I don't want him to run. You know, I get you don't asked. Want him to run. I don't want him to run. I Why? don't because we don't need him anymore. He, 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 I think he changed the party for the better. I wish he'd done better on spending, but I think he does as well. He got conned into spending more money than he wanted to by a re- largely Republican Congress. We talked about that there, as you said time. before, hypocrites on budget. Everybody loves spending money in Washington. They just don't like it when they're in the minority. Um, the uh, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train. Of thought. So we don't. The Republican Party doesn't need Donald Trump yeah, anymore. Um, that I think he's he's focused he's he's forced us to rethink our our attitudes on trade on China on foreign intervention. I think that's healthy for the party and good for the party. He's also, made it a more populist party. It has we we I think we're now just if you ask somebody if you ask someone in Washington which party defends the middle class the best they're always going to say the Democrats. If you ask somebody in the middle class who's defending them the best, they're probably going to give you a fifty fifty split between Republicans and Democrats right now. And, and you think former President Trump deserves some of the credit? Absolutely, if not most of the credit he does. For that. that being said. He might be the only Republican who can lose in 2024. To Biden or anybody else? Well, especially Biden. I mean, if Biden, everybody, that glass of water as a Republican could, could beat Biden in 2024. I'm not sure Trump could. Um, you know, you get against Gavin Newsom, it gets a little bit more you know, challenging, I think. if It would be a tighter race. Certainly Biden is the weakest Democrat candidate they could offer at this point. But Trump might be the only Republican who can lose, and that's not something I'm interested in. I don't like losing. And he's lost. He lost the House, lost the Senate, lost the presidency. And we, we should be doing better. And so I, I, we really, really need him. If he's, if he's going to back guys like 
Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania and Herschel Walker in Georgia, he needs to step up and make sure he delivers those seats because winning primaries and losing general elections is losing. That's the current trajectory. And that's 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 still losing. And there's one thing. Dan Donald, Cox in Maryland, an election yeah, denier, probably going to lose the governor's race. Winning a primary and losing an election, uh, losing a general is a loss any way you slice it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any potential favorites in 2024 not named Donald Trump? Um, you know, I'm friendly with all of them, and I'm I'm looking forward to being. There are a, two South Carolinians. There are Nikki, Nikki Haley, Haley and Tim, Tim Scott. Scott. Uh, Mike Pompeo and I served together. Good friends came into Congress together Been in 2010. Mike Pence. He and says I, he's going to run regardless. I think oh, so. If he decides to run, it will not be determined by whether former President Trump runs. And I absolutely believe that. I, I think Mike Mike doesn't lie about that kind of stuff. He sounds Mike, like he wants to run. I think he does. Mike Pence uh, and I have served together since 2010, and he was sort of a mentor of mine. The two years we overlapped in the House, and of course, obviously, I was four years with him in the White House. So these Describe are all. what you think he did on January 6th. Uh, heroic, absolutely. He, he he was he was a leader. He was a national hero on that particular day. As I tell people, I speak a lot overseas, and they always, oh, this is so terrible. I'm like, yeah, it was. We were we we bent, but we didn't break. And one of the reasons we didn't break was because Mike Pence. Um, and I, I think Pat Cipollone, maybe one of the few things he said that I ever that I agree with, which is that. Mike Pence should get the medal, Congressional Medal of Freedom because he single-handedly prevented from going it to the next step. Not only did he stay at the Capitol because he knew that if he left, he might not ever come back. Correct. He got on the phone and deployed while the president, who was empowered to do so, did nothing. So they say this next hearing tonight is going to be about dereliction of duty. I'm not sure that's going to make much of a case for a criminal charge, but it will be interesting to see how the president acted during that day and to compare his actions with that of Mike Pence. That is the voice of Mick Mulvaney. It's been our pleasure to talk to him. You are a CBS News contributor, so I imagine we may see you on the air. I'm here. They have my number. So says Mick Mulvaney. I'm Major Garrett. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For those of you watching on CBS News streaming and hanging out with us on podcast platforms, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial, because when we talk to Mick Mulvaney there, we're going to discuss two topics, Dire Straits and Ayn Rand. I'm Major Garrett. Because Mick Mulvaney and I have a very deep disagreement about the best Ayn Rand novel. And and Dire Straits, perhaps. We'll see. Maybe so. We'll see. See you next week. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Dubliner is our host restaurant. Always glad to be here. Always glad to be out and about. Hope you are, too, enjoying your summer. Mick Mulvaney is our special guest, CBS News contributor, former OMB director, and acting chief of staff in the Trump White House, because everyone was an acting chief of staff, let's be honest, folks. Oh, come on now. He had four in the first term. How how many did Barack Obama have in his first term? Four. Four. Including an acting. Yeah. So okay. yeah, face it, the life expectancy of a chief of staff in a first right. term is okay. short. Sure. So listen, I'll take a and lot of criticism of Trump, but not 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 for his turnover chief of staff. But you're the one who clung to acting because you knew that it was temporary. Um, the, the deal from the beginning was it was going to be temporary, yes. Right, exactly. All right. 
So a little bit of a deep dive into some strange, maybe strange, not to me, not to Mick, cultural waters. Ayn Rand and Dire Straits. Uh, he and I are both fans of both. And we have a very deep disagreement about the best Ayn Rand novel. Now, some of you might think there isn't one. Fine, whatever. You'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. <laughs> I am a huge advocate of The Fountainhead. I think it is by far the better of the two Ayn Rand books that are well-known, Atlas Shrugged being the other. Mick disagrees. And my guess is that you, read, of reading, you read The Fountainhead first. I did. And I read uh, Atlas Shrugged first. And to me, that was the whole, that was, that's, that's the difference of opinion is because w- once you read, it, it, I think the difference in, uh, in time between the two books is about 15 years. Mm-hmm. And she had matured as a writer. And it's just, I think that Atlas Shrugged is just a much well a better written piece of literature. And I remember reading uh, Atlas Shrugged a couple of times and going to read The Fountainhead and got through about three chapters and said, this is like watching somebody who was a professional late in life and was practicing, that The Fountainhead was practicing for Atlas Shrugged. You disagree. Yeah, I think Atlas Shrugged is oversimplified, too short. Too short? And sh- it's 800 no, no, pages. No, not, no, no, not, not in its length, but in its... In its uh, description of the underlying narrative arc it's too it's oversimplified it's kind of like a hammer on an anvil over and over and i thought the fountainhead and i believe the fountainhead is a little bit more elliptical takes more time let's see if but we can is agree on something it, 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 character it, it, development uncharacteristic washington fashion let's see if we can find something sure. we agree on which yeah. is i think your description of the an- hammer on the anvil absolutely describes the 100-page, and I'm not exaggerating, that speech that John Galt gives towards the end of the story yeah. to the point where I've read the book three or four times. I always skip the speech now because yeah, it's right. just so tedious after right. the first 25 pages of a single speech. Yes. That, yeah, I, 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 would, I could see that take on it. And look, uh, when I read The Fountainhead, it was my first job out of college. I was in Amarillo, Texas, fresh from the University of Missouri and growing up in San Diego. I was a bit of an outsider. So the idea of Howard Wark the central character of the Fountainhead, standing up against convention and all the pressures of the outside world resonated with me because there were plenty of West Texans who thought I did not belong in Amarillo, Texas. And you probably didn't. I didn't. <laughs> so what's the Dire Straits angle? So uh, we, both love the di- we both love Dire Straits. Uh, yeah. Consider them a great rock and roll band. I don't know if we have any disagreement. I just wonder what your favorite song is. Oh, it, it changes at times. I used to, um, when I it was OMB chair... Uh, I, I walked to and from work, right, director. I, did, I couldn't do that when I was a chief of staff because I had a Secret Service detail, but I used to love to walk to work. I get there about 6 a.m., I go home about 8 o'clock at night, and uh, I'd put Dire Straits on the headphones as I was walking. And my, my favorite at the end of the day to sort of unwind was Single-Handed Sailor, which mm-hmm. is on Communique. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I took up guitar during COVID to try and learn how to play that song. Any success? Not even close. Um, but I have the 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 um, the red uh, Fender Stratocaster with the white uh, white mm. plate on it from the uh, from the uh, from Dire Straits. So uh, no, sooner or later I'll I'll get around to it. But no, I I've seen him play several times yeah. as as Mark. I have Offer. never seen them. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think he may still tour from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, and his his solo work is good. So I've, I've I actually saw them as Dire Straits in 1985 in the Fox Theater in Atlanta on the Money for Nothing tour. Do you know how many albums, how many copies of that album sold? Over 30 million copies of that album. So my favorite song is Telegraph Road. Why? I love the story. Um, and I love uh, the gentle start, the swelling heavy finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, lo- but I, love, the, I love the songwriting. I, Go I, listen to Postcards from Paraguay. 
mm-hmm. which I think is on, I can't remember which album it is on, Postcards from Paraguay, another great story. He got better as a storyteller mm-hmm. as he got older and was less interested in the music and more interested in the stories, and that's why I enjoy listening to it to this day. Then came the lawyers, then came the rules. That's right. Oh, yeah. Uh, what is it? Uh, uh, punish the monkey and let the organ grinder go. Yeah, I thought about that a couple of times in the White House. <laughs> I bet you did. Who's the monkey and who's the organ grinder? One of the mysteries that will hang in the air here at The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for hanging out for The Takeout. I'll take a special. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.